It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Brian Kilmeade. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, July 15th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. As inflation goes up, the president's poll numbers go down. We've seen some of the blame for the bad news aimed at oil companies, other countries' leaders, the messengers doing the messaging, and even the press. I do think it's fair to say that a number of reporters who were easy to cut tougher on Joe Biden. But still, when you watch that briefing room, it still is largely a home game for the press secretary, for Joe Biden. I'm Chris Foster. Fox Sports reporter Tom Rinaldi's new project is about the murdered Major League Baseball player Lyman Bostock. Obviously, the tragedy of his death and how he died will always be a part of his story. But there's so much more to him, which is compelling. And I'm Janice Dean. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. As inflation soars and the president's poll numbers tank, Democrats are scrambling and so is the White House, at least if you believe the headlines, like questions swirl about White House messaging after Bettingfield's departure. Democrats' Biden problem takes over midterm messaging. One even read, why do Democrats suck at messaging? Those are just a few of the headlines from the last couple of months. The president himself told ABC late night host Jimmy Kimmel in June that his administration's accomplished a lot. They just haven't been able to communicate it well to the press. One of the things is that it's very difficult now to have a um, even with, with notable exceptions, even the really good reporters, they have to get the number of clicks on, on, the, on nightly news. Mm-hmm. So instead of asking a question, Anyway, it just everything gets gets sensationalized. And when it comes to the things that are not going well, like inflation and high energy prices, the president's message has been varied. The overwhelming consensus is going to pop up a little bit and then go back down. The inflation has everything to do with the supply chain. Make no mistake, inflation is largely the fall of Putin. While some of the messengers have left, including Jen Psaki and now White House Communications Director Kate Bettingfield, those who remain have been on defense. Economic advisor Jared Bernstein went on with Fox Business anchor Neil Cavuto this week after the latest inflation data came out. I'm saying more investment is the answer. More investment, well, investment in is production. Spending, right? And that might or might not be the solution, but well, past spending di- efforts have not really helped this. It's actually worse so, than it, right? You raise a really important distinction. You know, you like to focus on the headwinds, and I get it. If it bleeds, it leads. I understand that. No, I, I focus look. on reality, Jared. But there have also been some increasingly tense moments inside the White House briefing room over things like the baby formula shortage, and even when the president had last tested negative for COVID. Boy, is this administration struggling. And they're struggling because they're out of touch. And what's gone wrong are their policies. Ari Fleischer used to be in the White House briefing room regularly as a former White House spokesman for President George W. Bush. He's also now a Fox News contributor. It's not a communications issue. It's not a press secretary issue or a communications director issue. It's a Joe Biden issue. He made the decisions. He launched the policies that helped give a huge boost to inflation. He opened the southern border. The prosecutors that he won't criticize are the ones who've opened the country to crime. And it's all because he's governed differently than he promised. He's governed from the progressive woke left instead of the sensible center. What do you foresee, I guess, this year happening as a result of that? I mean, especially when we look ahead and to the midterms. 
Well, our democracy has always breathed through the expression of the voters in the form of elections. And in just four months, now less than four months, I think you can anticipate a massive blowout defeat for the Democrats. The first midterm of any president's term is historically tough. Combine that with a terribly unpopular president with a nation that's largely seen as being on the wrong track and inflation that's sky high. And the Democrats are going to lose the House. They're likely going to lose the Senate and state legislative races and judicial races throughout the 50 states. Democrats are going to get clobbered. This is shaping up like a 2010 or 2014 repudiation of Barack Obama, which was massive. And now it's going to happen to Joe Biden, too. I want to ask about what the president has said about gas prices, because he said refineries are making record profits and that they need to increase capacity. The oil and gas industry said we are operating at capacity, that weather and COVID took some refineries offline. And this administration keeps talking about renewables, so we're not going to invest in reopening those refineries. Put yourself back at the lectern for a moment. When you have Jeff Bezos calling out your administration's ability to understand oil markets and you have the U.S. Oil and Gas Association mocking your administration for having an intern post a tweet and telling them to go back to college to take Econ 101, what would you do? How would you respond? Well, I wouldn't work at this White House. so I will not be at that podium trying to explain something that cannot be explained. You know, the Democrats' fundamental problem when it comes to energy is this is what they want. The higher the prices for oil, the higher the prices for gas, the more solar and renewables can compete. So this is a result of what they want. But they're caught because they can't say it's what they want because it's hurting consumers. It's hurting the middle class. It's hurting everybody who has to heat a home, air conditioning a home or drive a car. So this is of their own doing. But they want to have it both ways. But make no mistake, if you support the Green New Deal, if you want to get off of oil and get off of gas, you need oil and gas to be sky high in terms of price. So that's why they closed the Keystone Pipeline. That's why they don't allow permits on federal lands. That's why they vilify the oil and gas industry, which hurts their ability to invest long term. I don't see the Biden administration trying to work with the private sector to open new refineries. So it's all hypocrisy because for the Green New Deal, this is what you want. All right, finally, the January 6th hearings are happening. We've heard from quite a few people. Um, It's been reported that after Mark Meadows' aide, Cassidy Hutchinson, testified, um, other people started to come forward. Um, And we know recently Wyoming Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, one of the two Republicans on this January 6th committee, said um, that... All of this may very well lead to a referral to the Justice Department against President Trump. Does that happen? And if it does, what happens after that? First of all, a referral means nothing. Congress has referred half a dozen to a dozen people in the last few years for referrals to the Justice Department. Republicans did it to Trump people, and now Democrats are doing it. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what the Department of Justice does. And that'll be a huge decision if they try to indict Donald Trump. Uh, I'd be shocked if they do that. But, you know, everything about the riot on January 6th was wrong. No one, regardless of cause, has an excuse to riot. No one, regardless of cause, should attack the police. No one should trespass. No one should do the things that were done at the Capitol that day, January 6th. But I have not learned a single new thing as a result of these January 6th hearings. No wonder the Democrats want to focus backwards. Their future is so difficult for them because of inflation and economics and the bread and butter issues that the American people care about. They need a distraction, and these hearings are their distraction. All right, let's talk about your book, 
Suppression, deception, snobbery, and bias, why the press gets so much wrong and just doesn't care. You do open by recalling a CNN segment in which Don Lemon and his guests mock Trump supporters for not knowing, I guess, basic things, right? Um, putting on a fake Southern accent, not knowing where Ukraine is. Tell me about that and what motivated you largely. Was it the media's reaction to Trump and his supporters? It was 100% the reaction to the way the press was covering Donald Trump as I sat there and watched it. And I try to be a fair-minded individual. I try to call the balls and strikes. But when I watched the press vilify Donald Trump and the snobbery, the disdain with which they looked down on Donald Trump's supporters, I just saw that the press has lost its way. America, for our democracy, we need a neutral and objective press. I don't care if the press likes someone or doesn't like someone. They need to be neutral. They need to be objective. And they abandoned their duties to the American people in their coverage of Donald Trump. The mainstream press, too many of them decided that the American people were wrong when they elected Donald Trump and that the press's job was to right the wrong. And so, therefore, they deceived the American people, put countless stories on the air that were not true, from Steele dossier to collusion to Trump stealing blue mailboxes to steal the election. The press has become activists, and I blow a whistle on it. That's why I wrote the book. This is the reckoning the press deserves and needs, but will not do for themselves. You and I both know there's a difference between talk shows and what reporters do. I'm a reporter. Um, Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, those are talk show hosts. When you were researching your book and you were looking at examples, what did you find in your assessment of reporters rather than talk show hosts that you found to be, I guess, most troubling? Great question. And I make an allowance for that. There is such a thing as opinion people, and Sean's the first to admit he's an opinion reporter. Don Lemon would claim he's an objective reporter, despite the fact that he's not. But what I found, and there's a chapter on CNN and a chapter in the New York Times on my book, that CNN's daytime reporters just let their opinions rip. All you have to do is watch Jim Acosta in the White House briefing room giving his opinions about what public policy should be. All you had to do was watch John Harwood CNN's White House reporter giving his blatant biased opinions, which he sounded like a spokesman for the Democrat National Committee. And I asked myself, how can these CNN reporters, daytime correspondents be doing that? And it's because the management of CNN wanted them to. They wanted their reporters to become activists. They rejoiced in the number of Twitter followers their reporters had. They rejoiced in how many Hollywood celebrities praised their reporters for being biased and anti-Trump. And it led CNN to having them leading the league in the number of retracted stories that CNN put on the air. Hmm. How do you think the press corps has done treating this administration? Because it does seem like there have been some exchanges, especially with Jen Psaki out and Queen Jean-Pierre in, um, over the baby formula shortage. And I, I remember even when the president, um, they got into it over when the president last tested negative for COVID. I think like four reporters kept insisting, why won't you just tell us when he last tested negative? Um, it does seem like a press corps that is growing a, a little bit more frustrated with this administration. Yeah, you know, from the day Joe Biden won South Carolina primary until the yeah, withdrawal from Afghanistan, the press could not have been easier on Joe Biden. One of the things I cite in my book is a study of the last five presidents and how much the press was negative or positive in their first 60 days. Joe Biden got the most positive, easiest press of any of the five predecessors, including Barack Obama. Since the withdrawal from Afghanistan, I do think it's fair to say that a number of reporters who were easy have gotten tougher on Joe Biden. 
But still, when you watch that briefing room, it still is largely a home game for the press secretary and for Joe Biden. Very few reporters are tough on this administration. When, when I was in that room, in that room at 49 seats, all 49 were tough, devil's advocate, hard questions against me, against President Bush. Right now, I'd say there's maybe 35, 40 who go easy, maybe 5, 10 who ask regular tough questions. And that's just not the way it should be. Too many reporters have enjoyed their role as being advocates and partisans. And they need to return, and this is leadership, to objectivity and neutrality. Is it leadership, Ari, or is it, is it leadership, Ari, or is it education? You, you also talk about interviewing and talking with young journalists in, in universities. Where does this then start? It starts in journalism school with who they attract to journalism school. You know, one of the points I make in my book is how biased journalism schools are. So right from the start, journalism has an original sin. The people who go into journalism are overwhelmingly cut from the same cloth, college-educated Democratic voters. And one study I found and reported in my book is the only group of Americans who think the press understands them are college-educated Democrats. Hmm. So in, in essence, journalism has become college-educated Democrat reporters writing stories that are only interesting to college-educated Democrat readers and viewers. So it starts with recruitment into journalism schools. It's leadership in newsrooms that presents other sides of thinking that anticipates that Donald Trump could have won in 2016, that doesn't just dismiss Republicans, conservatives, and populists out of hand as a bunch of wackos who are missing a front tooth, which is what many of them look at and think. So it's up and down the journalism chain. So that people can say, when I read the paper this morning, I believed what I read. All right, Fleischer, thank you so much for your time and your insight. We appreciate it. It's great to be with you. Thank you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Janice Dean with your Fox News commentary coming up. Tom Rinaldi is a reporter for Fox Sports working the sidelines during NFL coverage. He's covered some of the biggest events in sports, pro and college football, golf, tennis, horse racing, the Olympics. Besides live sports coverage, Tom's known for his award-winning original storytelling. The story he tells in a new audio documentary is about a Major League Baseball player murdered in 1978. There were shocked reactions today from the baseball world to the shooting death of California Angels outfielder Lyman Bostock last night. Lyman Wesley Bostock Jr. was 27 years old when he died. This isn't my first go-round with Lyman's story. Tom Rinaldi's new Fox Sports podcast series is called Wesley. It starts on Monday. I uh, had the opportunity to, to first tell it 14 years ago as a television feature at ESPN. And there was so much more to Lyman's story that we weren't able to cover in the initial story that we did. That was a big driver in wanting to revisit it. But another one was a powerful regret that I've carried here for those 14 years in botching an encounter I had with the man who killed Lyman Bostock, the only player to be murdered uh, in season in the history of Major League Baseball. We found the man that killed him, Leonard Smith, and I just mishandled it. 
And that's sort of sat with me. And that's a part of the later episodes here of the podcast as, as we revisit that. Okay. Um, well, good for you for getting another chance to, I know those, I know those kind of regrets and you don't often get a chance to, to erase them. Uh, so I would listen to the podcast and see exactly what you think you mishandled. Um, Lemon Bostock, I know of him probably unfairly, like a lot of people just for his murder. He was actually a really interesting guy and a really good ball player. Obviously the tragedy of his death and how he died will always be a part of his story, but there's so much more to him, which is compelling. Start with his excellence as a player, uh, his premium as a performer, career 311 hitter. That's the same batting average as Jackie Robinson. It's higher than players like Rod Carew. And I mean, I'm a player like George Brett, but he also was a Ichiro-like character in the batter's box, could hit to all fields, ran with great speed, was an excellent outfielder, being a, a 595th pick in the MLB draft and ultimately making it. So many aspects to his journey, which are fascinating, well beyond the way that he died. Well, let's talk about how he died. Uh, in a, to really simplify it, uh, it was a jealous husband, right? Talk about what happened that night. September 23rd, 1978, Lyman had spent part of his childhood growing up in Gary, Indiana, had a lot of family back there who would come and see him whenever he played in Chicago. And he was playing a series with the Angels against the Chicago White Sox at Comiskey Park. Lyman goes back to Gary, has a family dinner, and while there, brings up a childhood friend who he had read to when he was much younger, his uncle said she lives just a few blocks away. Lyman went with his uncle to visit that woman, and that woman's sister happened to be there, Barbara Smith, and she was estranged from her husband, Leonard. And that's what puts into motion what ultimately happens when Leonard Smith misinterprets seeing Lyman Bostock give his, his estranged wife a ride along with Lyman's uncle, and a friend across town pulls up alongside at an intersection and that's where Lyman's life ends. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't even remotely seeing the guy's wife in, uh, Not at in, all. in that way. Not at all. So what was, what was the defense? Uh, it was a, what most people say was an egregiously short sentence. Talk about his, uh, how his case played out. So not only do we, does the podcast explore the improbability of, of Lyman and his rise, his being really on the cusp of stardom in Major League Baseball, and the fact that he was one of the highest paid players in the game in 1978. But what happens in the aftermath of his shooting, where Leonard Smith's mother finds a way to pay for basically one of the best defense attorneys throughout Indiana, a man named Nick Theros. And Nick Theros, who chooses to employ a not guilty by reason of insanity defense. And the podcast takes you through not one, but two trials that Leonard Smith faces. And ultimately, the verdict that's reached, which lands Leonard Smith, who is clearly identified, Chris, as the shooter, not, doesn't dispute that, doesn't dispute that he fired a, four -ton, a 410 bore shotgun into the backseat of a car at close range, but that he wasn't in his right mind at the time because he was so jealous. Yes. And somehow a jury finds that plausible. 
Levin Bostock, he came up with the Minnesota Twins, uh, had what, three really good years, I guess. And then free agency was a relatively new thing then. And like, exactly, you, said, like, you, like you said, so he was famous not just for his plays, wasn't quite an all-star yet, but on his way to becoming one, if not a Hall of Famer, some people say. But he'd signed this huge contract. Well, we say huge. Then, uh, six years, $2.3 million. So that's about $383,000 a year. I looked it up. It's about $1.7 million uh, in today's dollars, which, you know, the most marginal major leaguers make. But at the time, it was big news. Huge. And the fact that he had chosen, he was pursued vigorously by a lot of big teams. His chief pursuer was the New York Yankees run then by the boss, George Steinbrenner, who had asked Reggie Jackson to be involved in Lyman's recruitment. There's an anecdote in one of the episodes in which someone shows up representing the Yankees who offers Lyman Bostock a couple of hundred thousand dollars to consider their contract offer as a show of quote unquote good faith. Lyman does not take that check. And he chooses to play for the Angels And as I'm sure you know, Chris, what unfolds in the first month of his career, in the fourth season of his career, is stunning. He feels this overwhelming weight of making that money, being one of the highest paid players in the sport, and tanks. He bats under 150 in his first month, goes to Gene Autry, the famous singing cowboy who was then the owner of the Angels, and refused his salary saying he didn't think he had earned it. Uh, The Angels say, we're going to pay you, Lyman. We're contractually bound to do so. Lyman receives the money and gives it away to charity, all of it, for the month, Uh, just shy of $50,000. At that time, for a player who the previous season had made $20,000 for the entire year, was a powerful, powerful gesture, something which got a ton of attention. Uh, Let me ask you about uh, just a a couple of things in the sports world. Number one, uh, what are your thoughts on the Live Golf League now that's that's, that's throwing all all this money at guys? It's a little bit relevant in the news. President Biden is uh, going to be visiting Saudi Arabia or is visiting Saudi Arabia. Um, Have you talked about it with, uh, with some of the players? I've texted with a couple of the players. I think a couple of things here, Chris, just simply put. One is that there is a, I wouldn't say it's an existential threat by any means, but it is a systemic issue for the PGA Tour. And and this is not going to break any news. Chris, as a sports fan, you know that four events dominate golf. The other events are wonderful. Listen, I love Bay Hill. I love the Memorial. I've, I've covered those events. But the, the U.S. Open, the Masters, the Open Championship, and the PGA Championship, there's a huge question here. Will players receive world golf ranking points and be able to qualify to play in those events, which have the most prestige, the most hi- historical weight, the most meaning? And if they can and still be guaranteed this kind of fortune to play in quote-unquote regular season events, there's going to continue to be a strong pull toward players later in their career, players who have been dealing with injury, who are going to be guaranteed a totally different level of financial security. That's a fascinating dynamic. We'll have to see how that unfolds. Yeah, some guys may have to, in the end, choose, do I want the money or do I want the prestige? Um, 
One more. Uh, gambling has now become a big part of mainstream sports coverage. It used to be, uh, you know, people would bet with bookies and whatever, and, but uh, the professional sports, the big leagues, uh, would really try to keep the whole thing at more than an arm's length, and now it's just being welcomed. Do you have any thoughts about it as a broadcaster? You know, it, it, the pull and force of sports betting and gambling is massive. It is a massive part of sports fandom, of the sports landscape. And I just think that there was an inevitability of leagues recognizing that, trying to figure out ways in which they could build that relationship in a way that could be governed and monetized. And that's what I think we've seen. You know and I know. It's been a part of sport fandom forever. And if the leagues feel that they can govern this, they can codify it in a way that preserves the integrity of the game, obviously huge question, then they're going to find a way to monetize a massive revenue stream, which has been untapped to this point. Well, thanks for talking to us, Todd. It was, it was, it was a pleasure. A new documentary called Wesley, that's Lyman Bostock's middle name. Uh, Wesley's an audio documentary about um, the murdered baseball player Lyman Wesley Bostock Jr. It's on the Fox Sports Podcast Network. It's available Monday. Uh, eight episodes. Of, how do you do it? You put them all out at once or you drip and drab it? So, yeah, and it's available everywhere, Chris, on, on Apple, on Spotify, on all the platforms where you, you would download and listen to you anywhere you get your podcasts. First four episodes this coming Monday, July 18, then episode five and six the following Monday and episodes seven and eight the Monday after that. So the entirety of the series will be out in the span of three weeks, but the first four episodes, July 18. We really hope people give it a listen um, and, and, and really learn about a, a remarkable story of a remarkable man who has been largely overlooked. Tom Rinaldi, Fox Sports. Uh, enjoy the All-Star Game in L.A. coming up uh on Tuesday, I, I hear you have a feature on Aaron Judge. I assume the angle is just that he hits baseballs very, very far. Uh, <laughs> Tom, it's good to talk to you. Thank you, Chris. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. Among the events the COVID-19 pandemic derailed or scaled back were weddings, Lots and lots of weddings. So an iconic New York City location decided to give I Do a do-over. 500 couples who found themselves putting off or paring down their big day gathered at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts for Celebrate Love, a re-wedding. The multicultural ceremony, which was not legally binding, featured music from Broadway stars, dancing, and a 10-foot disco ball. Some couples were celebrating new relationships while others renewed their vows many with family and friends, just like the big day they originally set out to have. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Janice Dean. 
What's on your mind? In October of 2021, New York Governor Kathy Hochul met with grieving families who lost loved ones in nursing homes during the COVID-19 pandemic. I was with my husband, Sean, whose parents, Mickey and Dee, were among the over 15,000 seniors who died from contracting the virus in their long-term care facilities. I remember feeling optimistic that if she heard our stories and saw our grief firsthand, she would help us find answers. The day of the meeting, she listened to us, offered her condolences, and promised to be fully transparent to help us get to the bottom of what happened in the spring of 2020. At the time, I believed her. But now, over two years later, we still don't know why Andrew Cuomo and the New York Health Department ordered over 9,000 COVID-19 positive patients into their residences without alerting our families. The administration never took responsibility for their reckless decisions and death toll cover-up. There is now strong evidence that Andrew Cuomo purposely hid these numbers to profit from a $5 million book he was writing about leadership during the pandemic. Hochul listened sympathetically to my husband, Sean, as he painfully explained what it was like losing both of his parents within two weeks of each other and not being able to see or comfort them. My friends Peter and Daniel Arbini gave Hochul their father's death certificate and asked why he wasn't counted in the whitewash of nursing home fatalities. I commented after our meeting that Hochul's actions would speak louder than words. And almost a year later, we have seen nothing to indicate she has been true to her promise to help grieving families. This past week, there have been a chorus of newspaper editorials from the New York Post, the Daily News, and the Times Union asking why Kathy Hochul is dragging her heels on her promised blue ribbon panel to go through all the good, bad, and ugly decisions that were made during the pandemic here in New York. My friend and fellow advocate New York State Assemblyman Ron Kim, who helped facilitate the meeting between grieving families and Hochul last year, is still holding out hope that she will be true to her word, but argues this can't be a review by consultants that she chooses to do the report. It needs to be an independent commission with full subpoena and investigative powers. In the meantime, families like mine are trying to figure out what we can do on our own. One thing that we're counting on is the passage of the New York State Senate Bill S-74A, known as the Grieving Families Act. This legislation would help in future lawsuits when a loved one's life wrongfully ends and consider the emotional loss when awarding damages. The bill would also increase the statute of limitations to file a claim, giving families the chance to have their day in court. However, the bill, if it's passed, would also require action and a signature from the very same Governor Kathy Hochul. I wish I could be more optimistic, but if history is our guide, the same woman who looked us in the eye and told us she cared and wanted to help has so far done nothing to make us believe her. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News senior meteorologist and host of the Janice Dean podcast that you can find starting Monday at foxnewspodcast.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.